Uh, the scripture reading for today is from John 1, verses 1 to 4, and verses 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and glory as of the only begotten of Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you, Chuck and Gloria, and thank you, Wizard Children, for the wonderful call to worship also for a fine, fine uh, children's story and all the children. Well, what's a trialogue? What is that? <laughs> well, sure. Is it, a, it's a, is it a little like a travelogue? In a way, in a way it is. Uh, this morning, uh, Eric and Peter and I are going to share some of the views from different windows on our scripture for today. It's sort of a little bit like that story about the blind people encircling the elephant and all of them telling exactly what the elephant was like. Of course. Let's read that, let's read that text again. Such an exciting text. And this is a different translation. This is Peter, Peterson's... Um, not an exact translation. The word was first, the word present to God, and God present to the word. The word was God. In readiness for God from day one. This is the part I love. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes a one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous, inside and out, true from start to finish. Let's just pray for a minute. We love hearing those words, God, and they're also just a little bit scary. It's kind of um, sometimes intimidating to think about you living in the neighborhood. It's wonderful that we can rely on you to be truth. Sometimes uh, truth is so incisive that it cuts us right to the marrow of our bones. And it's also terribly, terribly redemptive that we know that you're full of grace. But there is part of us also that feels like what we want to do is earn what we get from you. So help us to be willing to be happy to have you in the neighborhood, full of truth and grace. <clears throat> I'd like to tell you a parable. It's sort of reminiscent of Romeo and Juliet. Did you like that story, by the way, Romeo and Juliet? It's okay, you can say yes. <laughs> a long time ago, in a galaxy far away, <clears throat> a boy and a girl meet in the sixth grade, and they like each other. He rides her on the handlebars of his Schwinn bike. It was very important to him. It was very special. To the park, to the playground, and then to her home. 
The girl's family moves away, but keeps coming back to that general area to visit from time to time. They grow up in different circumstances and surroundings and have many different experiences. College, the army, work. Well, one day, the girl comes back as a grown-up and meets the boy again. He takes her in his baby blue Chevy convertible (laughs) to concerts, to the beach, to church, and to home. Well, they fall in love and become engaged to be married. The boy does the most beautiful Victorian thing. He writes a letter requesting permission to marry the girl. They're beyond the age where they have to have permission but it was, the, it was the loving thing to do. Well, the response was no. Because the family lived far away and for various reasons felt compelled to disapprove. But the plans moved along for the wedding anyway. And as the day approaches, it turns out the family was going to be in attendance. At considerable expense, they travel the distance and stay with the bride's sister. Early, the very morning of the wedding, the girl goes to the sister's house to talk with her father, inviting him to give her away. Well, he's shaving. And I can still see the angle of his lathered jaw, the hint of a twinkle in his eye and a tiny smile creeping to the corner of his mouth. As he answered in a Texan-tinged cadence, who else would? (laughs) You've caused us a lot of trouble, but I like you. It was truth and grace. I had caused them a lot of trouble, but he liked me. And in that moment that I knew that there was nothing that would stop my dad from loving me, was sort of an immediacy of an incarnational experience of Romans 8, 35, 38, and 39. These are also verses that I think are so encouraging to all of us that I'm just going to stop here and read them. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way, not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of, us phase, none of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. That love 
was evident in the garden where our first parents' first home was. In that time, we are told that they had regular communion with their Creator in the cool of the evening. Outside of Eden, some, that law had to be clarified and delineated a little bit more through something that has come to be called the law. I prefer to view it as the principle. That law was evident in as God spoke through various prophets, including Moses, who serves as a human metaphor for communication between the creator and the creature, between love and the loved. Hebrews 1 reminds us that God, who at sundry times and in various ways, through past experiences, spoke to our ancestors through prophets, has in these times spoken to us through his Son, by whom he has appointed and made the heir of all things, and by whom he also made the world. Jesus was the law congealed. Jesus was the law revealed. Jesus came to show us love full of grace and truth. Some have heard before the anacronym I love so well for grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's redeeming and changing energy. Jesus served as the human and the divine way back to the creator. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under its penalty that we might receive the adoption of God's children. That law is perfect. It converts the soul. It converts from the punishment that might be ours if we chose to disregard it to all its blessings. In Galatians, we are invited to experience that blessing. As it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has called you and made you free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. For people, we have been called to freedom, to liberty, not only in the occasion of our fleshly experience, but by love to serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in this one word, 
and saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And your neighbors, the ones in the neighborhood, as yourself. In Romans, Paul writes, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to our fleshly desires, but according to the Spirit. For the law of Christ and the Spirit of life have made us free from the law's penalty for what the law could not do because our weak flesh would not allow it God sending his own Son in the likeness of mortal flesh and for the purpose of redeeming from sin, condemned sin, as he lived among us. That the right doing of the law, its righteousness might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. James encourages us to live by this law of liberty, full of grace and truth. And because I can't help it, truth also has at least a couple applications which might be found in this in acronyms as well. T-R-U-T-H. From the creature's point of view, you, one might understand it is the road up to heaven. From the Creator's point of view, it might be understood as the righteous unction to holiness. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The catch, if this story sounds familiar, I told part of it about... 15 minutes ago. Put the boat out there in the deep water and put your net down. And the fisherman replied, we've been out here all night and we haven't caught anything and I'm a fisherman. I know how to catch fish. That's what he was thinking. And he actually said, we've been out here all night and we haven't caught anything. And then he says, and I would have loved to have heard the inflection because I almost hear him saying, all right, but because you ask, we're going to do what you say. And in his mind, I bet he's thinking, and it's going to be just like every other time we throw the nets out. I'm told that the nets in those days were circular nets, and the fish would get caught up, and then they'd pull them up into boats. They pull, they put the nets down, and that's when the mother of all fish stories went down. And it almost took two fishing boats with it. So many fish, the nets were breaking. So many fish, Peter has to call his buddies, who are also fishermen and also never seen anything like this, and they pulled the fish not only into one of their boats, but into two of their boats. And the boats were starting to sink. 
So, what would you say when you were uh, confronted with the catch of your life? Who, see, who, who watches a Deadliest Catch where they go out off the... Right, imagine if they caught so many of those things that their trawler starts sinking. What would you say? What would a response be at that point? Peter says he falls in a boat, in a lake. He falls before Jesus and he says, Get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. I don't belong to be in your presence in this kind of grace. The nets were full of fish. The disciples were full of wonder. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, if you thought that was unlikely, what he had to say next was probably even more improbable than what they had just seen. Because he tells Peter, it's okay. Don't be afraid, because I'm going to make you, from this point forward, you're going to catch men. What? Seriously? This guy? This guy, he was barely a fisher of fish. And he's going to be a fisher of men. He's going to lead others. And he's going to be a foundation in a movement that will change the world. Hmm. What qualifications did he have? Was Jesus telling the truth when he said that? He was. He was. We have the benefit of history to know Jesus was telling the truth. It just may not have been truth at that exact time. A lot was going to happen. Something really remarkable was going to to happen to transform this cleaner of fishing nets into a leader of men. And that something powerful was going to have to be grace. Peter didn't have just one brush with God's grace and truth. He had one life-altering close encounter after another. We're just going to look at a few of them quickly this morning and see what we might be able to learn from them. Starting with the name. Jesus says to Simon, he says, you're Simon and you're the son of John. But you know what I'm going to call you? I'm going to call you Rock. And with that, Peter not only had, it wasn't just a nickname, it was a destiny. Except that Peter wasn't a rock. He was um, impulsive. He was unstable. He acted before thinking. But Jesus gave him the name anyway. Why? That was grace. But thankfully, when Jesus looks at Peter and when he looks at you and when he looks at me, he sees what we can be, not just what we are. Thank God for that. But even with a new name and a new career path, Peter struggled to fully comprehend the reality of God's grace and truth. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you struggle with those concepts sometimes? And if you're having... Oh, hold on. Yes, Jesus knew what Peter may not have at that moment, that Peter was full of potential. This name that he gave him was full of promise. And Jesus was full of... Grace and truth. Still struggling to get it. If we have a tough time getting our arms around this idea of God's grace or the idea of God's truth, 
then take heart. You're not alone. And also go back to the essence of the inseparable grace and truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, that whoever believes in him will not perish, shall not perish, but have what? That's grace and that's truth. And you can't pull one out from the other. The wave walker. If you want to see if I'm staying on track, you can find this story in Matthew 14 and other places in the gospel. But I'll telescope it a little bit. Jesus comes from a night of prayer. The disciples are out on the lake. Another boating story. There's wind. He sees the disciples struggling against it. So Jesus does what some of us would probably have never have thought of. He says, I'm going to take the straight line. And he walks out to them on the water. Now the disciples, again, a lot of them are fishermen. They're comfortable on the water. They're comfortable with boats. Have never seen anything like this. So naturally they think, that's a ghost, and they freak out. To which Jesus says, it's not a ghost. It's me. Don't be afraid. Now Peter is the one who speaks up. And he says, okay, Lord, please be Lord and not a ghost. If it is you, tell me to come out to you. Is that, that's a wild thing to say at that point. Some of us might have said, okay, I'm glad it's not a ghost. I hope it's you. I'm staying in the boat. That's what 11 of them said. And one of them says, okay, if it is you, tell me to come out to you. Did Peter have any right to dictate terms to Jesus? But Jesus allows that. Why? Grace. He saw that here was a moment where not only Peter, but all the disciples could realize there's another kind of truth at work here. You don't have to be a fisherman to know what the properties of water are. If you get out of a boat, will the surface hold you? No. But here is Peter, part fearless and part fearful, and he's getting out of a boat. Jesus later says, oh, you have little faith. Maybe, but how much faith does it take to acknowledge that maybe something else can happen? And the reason he takes that step is that he, because he believes somehow Jesus can make it so. And he's doing great until. Until, the story says, he sees the wind. What an interesting expression. Now, we don't see wind, literally, but we all surely see the effect of the wind. And when Jesus takes his eyes off, I'm sorry, when Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, who it's clear has authority over water and wind, and he turns his eyes to the conditions that threaten him, he starts to what? Like a what? Stone. Like a rock. There's a lesson here for all of us who see winds of economic uncertainty and see waves of financial crisis crashing all around us today. And I see them, and I know you see them too. Jesus is more powerful than natural forces, and guess what? He's more powerful than economic forces. And for those of you who were in Sabbath school class last Sabbath, give yourself extra credit if you recognize that analogy as homiletics. Did you get that? Okay, remember we talked about that? Okay, there you go. See, I did use that word in a sentence. Jesus saves Peter. He reaches down, and when they get back in the boat, the disciples worship God, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The disciples were full of wonder. Peter, like so many of us, was full of contradictions. 
And Jesus was full of what? Grace and truth. You see, it takes more than a moment to be changed by a God. It doesn't happen in an instant. It takes an ongoing conversation. Jesus and Peter walked and talked together for three years, and Peter stumbled. But in that time, he kept moving closer to the fisher of men that Jesus saw that he could be. And just like Peter, God wants to have an ongoing, life-changing conversation with each one of us. And you know what? You never know what can happen if you jump into, a, now you can move over to, I think it is, um, Acts 3. Keep in mind it's the same person. Peter and John come and they find this guy who's been brought to the front of the temple gates. And he's begging there. All this guy expects that day is to beg for money and go home, to be taken home. Peter and John come out, they see him, and he's not even looking at them. And they say, Peter says, look at us first thing he does is establish eye contact, a relationship. And the guy's expecting what? He's expecting money. That's been the drill for weeks and days and months. And, and Peter says, I don't have any money. I don't have any money, but what I have, um, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up. And the guy does. And he, they head to the temple, and he's ecstatic, and he praises God. This is Peter, the same guy, the healed man is full of joy. The people, people were full of amazement. And guess who is full of grace and truth now? See, it took a while, and it took the Holy Spirit, but Peter now understood something that I want us to catch a glimpse of this morning. Yes, Jesus wants us to receive grace and truth, but he doesn't want it to stop there. He wants us to share that grace and truth with others. And Jesus shared it his whole life, and he wasn't on empty when he, was, when he left this earth. He was just as full of grace and truth as he was when he started. So the more you share, the more you get. So how do we do that? By using the gifts God has given us to help others. And Peter is full of suggestions. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter 5, 8-11. 1 Peter 5, 8-11. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 4, 8-11. to Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Bill Moyer's documentary film on the hymn Amazing Grace includes a scene filmed in Wembley Stadium in London. Various musical groups, mostly rock bands, had gathered together in celebration of the changes in South Africa. And for some reason, the promoters scheduled the singer Jesse Norman as the closing act. The film cuts back and forth between scenes of the unruly crowd in the stadium 
and Jesse Norman being interviewed. For 12 hours, groups like Guns N' Roses have blasted the crowd through banks of speakers, riling up fans already high on booze and dope. The crowd yells for more curtain calls, and the rock groups oblige. Meanwhile, Jesse Norman sits in her dressing room discussing Amazing Grace with Moyers. The hymn was written, of course, by John Newton, a coarse, cruel slave trader. He first called out to God in the midst of a storm that nearly threw him overboard. Newton came to see the light only gradually, continuing to ply his trade, even after his conversion. He wrote the song, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, while waiting in an African harbor for a shipment of slaves. Later, though, he renounced that profession, became a minister, and joined William Wilberforce in the fight against slavery. John Newton never lost sight of the depths from which he had been lifted. He never lost sight of grace. When he wrote, that saved a wretch like me. He meant those words with all his heart. In the film, Jesse Norman tells Bill Moyers that Newton may have borrowed an old tune sung by the slaves themselves, redeeming the song just as he had been redeemed. Finally, the time comes for her to sing. A single circle of light follows Norman, a majestic African-American woman wearing a flowing African dashiki as she strolls on stage. No backup band, no musical instruments, just Jessie. The crowd stirs, restless. Few recognize the opera diva. A voice yells for more guns and roses, and others take up the cry. The scene is getting ugly. Alone, a cappella, Jessie Norman begins to sing very slowly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. A remarkable thing happens in Wembley Stadium that night. 70,000 raucous fans fell silent before that aria of grace. By the time Norman reaches the second verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." The crowd is with her. By the time she reaches the third verse, "'Tis grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home." Several thousand fans are singing along, digging far back in nearly lost memories for words they heard long ago. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Jessie Norman later confessed that she had no idea what power descended on Wembley Stadium that night. I think we know. The world thirsts for grace. When grace descends, the world falls silent before it. 